Welcome to ContraPulse. This is Julie. This week, we talk with Nils Fredland. Nils has been calling dances with admirable skill and infectious energy since 2000. Respected for his expertise as a teacher and caller, Nils has been one of the busiest and most sought-after callers in the business. He draws on a large and varied repertoire of dances, presenting material from centuries-old chestnuts to cutting-edge contemporary choreography. Nils is also known for breathing new life into traditional singing squares, and he has co-authored two books on the topic with master callers. Nils studied classical trombone at Indiana University and has played his horn in ensembles ranging from symphony orchestras to ska bands. In his contradance band, Elixir, Nils brings together his myriad talents in one place. Nils has worked for the Country Dance and Song Society as a project manager and editor. He's been a program director, a Waldorf music teacher, and he enjoys his current position as artistic director of Revels North, a community arts organization in northern New Hampshire and Vermont. During our interview, we talked about Nils's background in classical trombone, his ventures into acapella and ska, and how he ended up as a caller and contra musician. Nils shares some stories from his many hours on stage, and we spend a lovely time reminiscing about legendary caller Ralph Sweet. And he talks about working with musicians as a caller, and his favorite features of contra dance music. It was late at night when we recorded this conversation, after Nils had already done an online Revels event. So, it was after midnight when we ended. We were getting a little tired, but I think it also made it easier to speak openly about our feelings, and I found Nils's thoughts very moving. Hope you enjoy.
Well, hello, Nils Fredland. Welcome to ContraPulse. Thank you, Julie. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so glad to see you. It's been a while. It has. We used to see each other just at things, you know, when you're just out in the world and you see each other at things, dance weekends and such. Not so much. Last time might have been not so much these days. Now, maybe when we were in Colorado together at the Rocky Mountain Rendezvous Dance Weekend, was that the last time I saw you? I think probably. That was what, back in September or something like that? I think that's right. Yeah. September 2019, the before times. It is remarkable where we are right now. Um, Yeah. But it's nice to see your smiling face. It's nice to see you. There's so many things we could talk about. I mean, selfishly, I just want to ask you like what you've been up to, but we'll get to that via contra dancing. Okay. Um, but what I would love to do is just, I would love to have you share a little bit of your story of how you got started playing for contra dances and how you ended up calling. <laughs> maybe those paths are related and maybe they're not. So I'd be curious to hear sure. about all that. Well, it'll be fun to kind of walk down um, this memory lane. And I, I probably will get some of these details wrong because it's a while ago now. But, um, uh, you know, I'll pull in all of the elements and um, and perhaps others that are listening can uh, reach out and correct me on the on the order. <laughs> um, they will. <laughs> I'm sure that they will. So. So I let's see. I started contra dancing in like 1996, 1997. I went to my first contra dance um, and that was in Plainfield, Vermont uh, as a, a culminating party of a, a recording project um, that was done by Village Harmony. Um, I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with Village Harmony, Larry Gordon and that whole that whole wonderful group of people. And my very first contra dance was called by Fred Park and um, the band was Popcorn Behavior with a probably a Whoa. probably a Stefan Amadon that was maybe nine years old. <laughs> um, I'm so jealous. Stefan and Sam and uh, what's uh, Thomas, right? Thomas Bartlett, the piano player. Um, yes, Thomas Bartlett so, and Keith Murphy. And yep. I don't think Keith was playing on that night. I think it was just the three boys, but. Uh, oh, fun. But, you know, that evening really made an impression, both uh, with respect to the calling. I was completely captivated by Fred. Um, I remember watching him and and being sort of overwhelmed and very confused about what direction my body was supposed to go in, but also feeling just so um, well taken care of and kind of excited by the whole experience and a lot of that was just coming because Fred was so joyful about what he was doing, you know? Um, and then the music kind of moved me, uh, moved me along. So that was a pretty auspicious beginning to, um, a, a life in contra dancing. And, uh, and so gosh, fast forward to a Northern harmony tour that I was on, oh boy, maybe in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, Seth Houston happened to be on this particular tour, as did uh, Anna Patton. Um, 
and a number of other uh, people that were already involved in the in the contradance world. And Seth had this idea that he wanted to create a contradance band out of uh, members of this particular iteration of Northern Harmony. Um, and so it, we did. And he knew that I was a trombone player and encouraged me to um, pick up the horn and uh, and play. And that band was called Jonah and the Whales. We probably had, I don't know, maybe three, maybe three gigs. Um, I don't know how many times we played as a, as a contradance band over the course of that tour, but we had a good time. Um, Anna and Seth and I, Naomi Morse. Um, mm. Oh gosh, Emily Miller uh, um, also played fiddle. And my friend Haley Anderson played um Barry Sachs. It was a pretty intense band. Um, so that was a good uh, that was a good introduction to playing music for contra dances. Seth, um, as I think you probably know, Julie, uh, is a very um, playful musician, but he's also really, really heady about stuff. And so mm-hmm. um, he created all of these arrangements, which was like a dream for me because I didn't come from a background of being comfortable making stuff up at all. Um, so having someone actually set notes in front of me, like it was def- there was definitely a level of comfort there that I wouldn't have had if the approach had been, you're a trombone player and it would be great just for you to come and like play some stuff. I would have been a little bit lost, especially then. Um, and so having Seth there sort of having a vision and shepherding it along by saying, I think the trombone would sound great doing this gave me a lot of, um, uh, kind of safety. And it also gave me a lot of ideas that have evolved as the direction that I've taken playing, um, trombone for contra dances over the course of the last, I don't know, 25 years. So it really started there. Um, and at some point on that tour, I had had a little bit of experience calling a couple of open mics in Bloomington, Indiana, which is where I actually went to, um, some of my earliest regular contra dances, um, in the nineties. So I knew the mechanics of calling, but I hadn't really had much of an opportunity to kind of do it on a regular basis. And on this tour, um, you know, we worked with a couple of uh, a couple of different callers. We actually rolled through um, a town in Iowa. I think it was Iowa, and Will Mentor, who I didn't have any uh, relationship with at the time. I don't even think we talked or or met um, that night. But I remember seeing him call. He called with Jonah and the whales, <laughs> which was really wow. sort of a fun a fun thing. And everything is um, you know swirled together and come full circle in a lot of ways. In any case, there was um, there were opportunities on that tour where we had the inclination to dance, but there was no caller, and so um, I sort of stepped forward and tried to uh, use the limited skills that I had as a caller at that point to kind of cobble together these dance experiences. And I remember once with no sound system in a giant echoey gymnasium in Germany trying to like climb up um this like uh sort of climbing wall so that and yell 
so that people could hear me. <laughs> Most of them didn't really understand what I was saying, but it was a party, you know, like that's an early calling memory that is, was quite formative. Like, all right, I'm just going to embrace the situation that's in front of me. And, um, here we go. Let's see what happens. And I think that, um, as well as some other, uh, um, you know, dance calling experiences that happened during that tour planted the seed in Anna's mind that eventually grew into, um, what became Elixir, which, um, is really what has kind of evolved as my main, uh, relationship to making music in the contradance context. There's one, mm -hmm. um, you know, one significant, uh, experience that happened prior to um, falling in step with uh, with Elixir, and that um, was going on a big cross country tour. At this point, I had started a, a career. I remember going to my dad, my um, economics professor father, and saying, um, "Dad, I, I I'm going to be a contradance caller." Um, and uh, you know. God love him. He was willing to um, go along with that idea. <laughs> um, and I went on a big cross-country tour shortly after that with good friends of mine from Asheville, North Carolina, um, Pearl Mueller, uh, Willie Repoli, and Chris Holloman um, in a band called Mock Turtle Soup. And, uh, and, I did all of the calling and a little bit of trombone playing. So that was another, um, that was another experience that evolved from the experience with, um, Jonah and the whales and sort of was a bridge to moving in the direction of what, um, became elixir when I found myself back in, in new England. So that's kind of the short version. I can go longer. I'm sure there are other details that I could dig into, but ask me questions. <laughs> Yeah. And and we can circle back to all these things. This does not have to be a linear interview. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you were a classical trombone player in college. That's what you studied in yeah. college. Yes. Um, what was it like making the shift from classical trombone to probably not playing by ear much at that point to learning to play by ear? Or maybe you never learned to play by ear. Or maybe it wasn't relevant for Elixir. Um, what you would know, you say about those things? Um, so I played, I was definitely um, most comfortable with a, a piece of music in front of me. And that, to an extent, that is still true. Um, I did happen to be at uh, Indiana University at a time when there were a lot of really amazing trombone players, mostly in the classical realm, and there were these two really terrific um, big bands. And so I had the opportunity to play under, um, I think I played lead in a big band that was led by a, an amazing um, trumpet player and director named Dominic Spera. Um, and that, even though I didn't solo in that band, that actually kind of put me around people that could make stuff up. And, mm -hmm. and it gave me 
I think at the time I was a little, I was very intimidated. I felt like I was a, to- a fish out of water, uh, like a complete fraud in that context. But I think about that experience more frequently now. It's surprising to me how readily I can kind of draw um, draw up those experiences and, and kind of realize that that was some of the foundation of, oh yeah, it is possible to actually play something interesting without, you know, reading the notes off the, off the page. Um, I, you know, and, and I think falling into this world where um, there are other trombone players that play contradance um, music, but there are very few of us. And so mm-hmm. there isn't, I think for me personally, there wasn't anyone really for me to compare myself to and feel um, both inspired and also, um, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, I don't know, I used the word intimidated before. And I think that would apply, that would apply here. I think especially early on when I was trying to kind of get my, get my footing. I think because there was no basis for comparison, I just was like, what's going to work? what's going to work for me? Like if I don't have something to play, what do I do? And, um, and that started with a lot of long tones. You know, I understood enough about chord progressions that I could kind of pick out the roots of most chords and play them. And when I played them long and low, people seemed to like it. (laughs) And so I started (laughs) there and then that moved into, you know, maybe some bass lines. And then I also have some comfort and strength playing in the upper register. And so, um, you know, exploring those two kind of extreme ranges and not doing a lot of melodic stuff, but enough that um, complemented what else was going on musically really opened up into this um, realm of being comfortable playing by ear and responding to what the musicians around me are doing. You know, I think as a, you know, a lot of times um, when I uh, bring the trombone out, I think especially early on when people didn't, when, when dancers didn't have a a sort of uh, um, relationship or understanding of my approach, the response would be, Oh God, a Trump, you know, that's going (laughs) to like overwhelm everything and sound people. I love, you know, I love the sound people that I've worked with, but sound people often would say, you don't need a microphone on that thing. It's just going to be loud. And I'm like, no, it's not loud. It's not just loud. (laughs) There's a lot that the trombone can do that's not just loud. And so there's been this kind of journey of, um, of also, uh, understanding what the full range of the trombone is in terms of dynamics and how that complements um the needs of the moment from a musical standpoint you know and i don't profess to be a great trombone player but i think i do understand contradance music enough to know how the horn fits well according to my own abilities so i've really played within within that i haven't tried to be anybody other than myself as a trombone player which is kind of a nice situation to find oneself in. And I think contra dance music is a kind of perfect environment for that. Yeah. 
yeah, we're all best when we are ourselves for right. sure. Um, and, and you also had some ska background as well, yes? I did. So my first, I, my first job out of college was, so I was a classical trombone major at Indiana University. And um, it became pretty clear towards the end of my time at IU that what I imagined myself doing when I was in the eighth grade and, you know, setting myself on this path of, of um, becoming a, a symphony trombone player was probably not going to happen um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I, you know, there were a lot of a lot of incredibly talented um, players in the class that I graduated with, you know, some of whom play like in the Boston Symphony now and who made you know, finals in New York and like all of the big orchestras, I was looking at these guys and saying, first of all, I don't, I don't, I don't play quite at that same level. And I also don't have the drive mm -hmm. that would really be required to pursue that dream. And there was mm -hmm. a little bit of a kind of mourning of that identity. Like I really, I really thought that that's the direction that I was going to go in and it didn't, it didn't manifest. I completely lost track of your question. Isn't that funny? You asked me oh, about ska, <laughs> right? And so, um, and so, um, Bloomington, Indiana was a great uh, live original music scene. There's a great club scene. A whole bunch of different kinds of music. I sang in this fascinating, fun acapella band called Monkey Puzzle, which was a, a really eye-opening, not trombone-related, but completely changed my perspective as a musician. Introduced me to um, you know groups like um, Sly and the Family Stone and Grand Funk Railroad, and um, you know. Um, the talking heads. I like, I, I grew up um, listening to the Beatles and like Gilbert and Sullivan records, <laughs> you know, like that was my, mm -hmm. um, that was my musical upbringing. I listened to like um, the Mozart horn concertos, uh, this great recording by this kind of wild child French horn player named Dennis brain. Some of your listeners probably know Dennis brain. Um, you know, like these are my, my early memories. And so monkey puzzle opened my eyes to, to all of this music that I just was completely unfamiliar with. And I started going to hear some local bands, including this, um, this ska band that was very popular at the time in the nineties, uh, called Johnny Sacco in, um, in, uh, in Bloomington, Johnny Sacco was based in Bloomington, but toured all over the place. And so when I graduated from college, I was kind of a little rootless. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was working at, you know, Ben and Jerry's and like staying in my college town and still playing a lot of music and singing with monkey puzzle, but, um, not with a lot of direction. <laughs> and some would question mm -hmm. the direction that, that, um, my next choices sort of took me in, but I played, um, the, the trombone player in Johnny Sacco, who's the guy that I knew, um, was leaving the band. And so um, I knew some of the guys in the band sort of peripherally. I was a fan. I used to go to their shows all the time. And it just sort of happened that I fell into this role. 
And I played in that band for a year. We played um, 250 shows in a year and traveled. In one year, wow. And traveled across uh, the country, coast to coast. And there was a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot of the, the horn arrangements were done by um, a fantastic saxophone player named Josh Silbert, um, who came from a jazz background. He'd studied it at IU. And um, the trumpet player was named Damian Hostetter, um, also, um, also played at IU in the jazz program. And so I was sort of merged with these, these two guys that did have a lot of those skills that I didn't, um, you know, I didn't currently possess. And while there was a lot about that year that was not especially healthy for me, and I don't need to go into those details, but, um, one of the things that it really did teach me was how to perform, you know, cause there were, mm -hmm. so it was like night, it was a grind night after night. I remember getting, we traveled across the country in the 16 passenger van, um, um, and I remember I, I joined the band in January of 97, I think. And, um, I remember getting in the van at the beginning of March and not getting out of the van until the end of April. Like we had, we had three days off during that whole stretch. And otherwise it was just new town, new club, new town, new club, new town, new club, playing the same set list. Um, but for a completely different crowd. And that was something that I'd never experienced before. So the opportunity to like be on repeat like that and making it feel fresh and fun and trying to, um, embrace the opportunity to play as well as I could and also be, um, a little bit looser than I had kind of grown accustomed to in my very classical, um, uh, training. So I'm glad you brought that up. I haven't thought about those, that whole experience and those guys in a really long time. It's funny the some of the skills we have in our other lives as musicians, we can take to contra dance musicianship. And they transfer well in this funny way, you know, like for you getting this experience, just performing and kind of just cranking it out every night. And, you know, contra dance musicianship, if you're doing it full time, often involves a lot of travel and getting used to that world. And then also just the way you internalize horn lines. And a lot of that would lead to the future sound of elixir you know, where you and Jesse Hazard Watkins both have like classical music backgrounds. And so you have that certain kind of tone. So it's not like big band horn lines. It's something else, right? Yeah. And they're infused with like the way Anna's sensibilities and the way she thinks about music in a jazz perspective. And like you take the three of you and your various sensibilities and you get this sound of elixir, you know, plus Owen Morrison, the rhythm machine, and Ethan just carrying the fiddle tune. You know, Ethan's the one who's kind of holding it down in a way while you guys do all these amazing things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is really fun. I mean, I can't imagine, um, you know, we just had this opportunity to play a Zoom concert with Elixir for some of the folks in um, on the West Coast. Primarily, it was a, like it was a replacement for what would have been um, a dance weekend in Monterey. 
And mm-hmm. it happens to coincide with the band's 14th anniversary, I think. Like we've been we've been around for for a while. And so we had this kind of walk down um, memory lane and Ethan put together a slideshow of some of the early pictures of Aww. us, at, uh, which was a really fun thing to see. We didn't actually see it until he unveiled it during the during the Zoom. So we had this little break to like reflect on where we've been as a band and how things have kind of evolved. And I have to say, you know, I I really love the opportunity to collaborate musically with people that I also enjoy personally. Like that's a big part of why playing music in the contra dance context has been really satisfying because I like every, I, you know, I really just like everybody mm-hmm. that I, that I play with. And that is especially true for the, um, for my bandmates in, in Elixir. And it was great to have that opportunity to kind of, Take that walk down memory lane and realize how much we've grown together as a band um, musically and how that has actually been informed in so many ways by how we've grown together personally. Like we've we've been through a lot on the road mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, they're family. They really are. And that's such a, that's such a lovely experience to have. And there are things that I will do as a musician with Elixir and ways that I'll talk and kind of bear out whatever um, struggles I'm having, having um, musically with them that I would, I, I would not be able to do with, a, with any other, any other group just because of sort of who we have become in, in each other's lives. And I, you know, I really, I'm sorry, I'm kind of waxing. I don't know what the right word is. Nostalgic. Like, and I think, uh, not having the opportunity to like be around people, so much in the last yes. in the last nine months i feel like um when i have the opportunity to talk about people i care about all i want to say is i love everybody <laughs> like <laughs> well i think that feeling is what many of us feel when we're new to contra dancing yeah you know like i i had a friend um you know several people will know who this is but he just discovered contra dancing. Actually, this could be anybody's story. That's the thing. He discovered contra dancing and then just fell in love with it, became obsessed, and started going to every weekend he could. And the first year, it was like him falling in love with this and all the people. And then after a while, you still love it, but you kind of get used to how great it is. And, you know, sometimes we even take it for granted. And so it is a chance to step back and have all these fond memories, you know. It is a nice thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that draws contra musicians to it is that it's more than just, it's not a performance. That's not, that's not the point. Right. You know, it's something else. It's like an interaction with people that is hopefully meaningful and if not fun, you know, hopefully it's one or two of those things, ideally both. Right. Right. (laughs) And, you know, there are, a lot, there are other musicians, you know, who have come to this from other kinds of music 
where they played in rock bands and were tired of the club scene and showing up and no one knowing who they were and it not always being a healthy environment or you know even like i was intrigued into doing techno contra because other people were doing techno contra and i thought well i could do it live and i liked electronic music but was not into the rave scene uh-huh. at right. all right you know and all these things and so it's an interesting home for people right you know you mentioned techno contra and that is something that um you know as i've as i've sort of evolved in in uh um in my role as a caller and also as a as a musician there was definitely a period and it wasn't really that long ago where i was sort of skeptical of um I don't know, techno contra or like new stuff for whatever reason. I mean, like I say this, I feel like such a, um, such a, uh, uh, I don't know, hypocrite or something. Um, because you know, I'm, I'm bringing this instrument that is highly untraditional into, into this world. And so for me to like, um, turn my nose up at techno contra seems really funny. Um, I don't, feel that way now like there's this sense of i think early on i felt like i i knew what i liked and i i wanted things to be the way that i liked them to to be and i was you know i had a vision and now what excites me most about this world is seeing bands that are doing like stuff that i haven't encountered before um actually getting up on stage and calling a techno contract like i remember um in in uh boston uh with you and noah for the first time Mm -hmm. kind of getting it like it was one of the spark in the dark series i remember i was there and i was like oh this is why people are really excited about this like i get it now and i didn't i you know i I wasn't uh, super grumpy about it or anything before that, but there's something about that night that I can, I can go back to. I stand on that stage, like I can feel what it was like listening to Noah sing the PJ song, like for the first time. <laughs> you know, it's like this is really weird, and it's so great. You know, and isn't it amazing that contradancing? And contradance and contradance <laughs> music can be all of these things, you know, like the super traditional right. old time band that is just rocking and it's so fun to call squares to, to whatever it is that Elixir does, to, you know, what what you and and Noah do when you're playing for a techno contradance to like, um, what a you know, like what DJ Improper was doing. And I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed being on stage with a, with a single DJ too. Like it was mm-hmm. wild. Like all of this, all of this stuff. Mailman passes by. I just wonder why. He never stops to ring my front door bell. Not a single line from that old love of mine. Not a word since I last heard farewell. 
That's the reason that I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter and make believe it came from you. Gonna write those words so sweet, they're gonna knock me off my feet. Put some kisses at the bottom, I'll be glad I got them. Gonna say, my dear, I hope you're feeling better. And end with love the way you used to do. Gonna sit right down and write myself a letter. And make believe it came from you. could be all these different things what is the heart of what makes it good confidence music to you mm. um, in that case i'm just skipping right usually i say these questions for the end but i'm just skipping right to the money question yeah gosh what makes it good like rhythm i mean really if a, i think if a band is really 
churning out great rhythm, then it's easy to kind of layer on top of that. Like if that piece is absent, then there can be exciting elements that happen, but for the most part, you know, it it falls a little it falls a little flat for me. So I think like the most essential thing, what makes really, really great dance music is just a solid rhythmic motor. And that can come like, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Owen Morrison earlier is, and called him the rhythm machine or something like that. Like <laughs> that to, to have, to have that model and be able as a, um, as a, um, an instrumentalist that is not um, typically thought of as a, as a rhythm instrument, right? Like the trombone can kind of complement that, that um, rhythmic drive, but everything rhythmically that I do with my instrument is informed by what I hear and feel coming from Owen. So the whole, Mm. the whole band really kind of sits on his shoulders and, and goes um, from there. And the fact that, you know, a brilliant musician like Anna Patton can do as many things as she does in the context of an elixir um, uh, set during a contra dance. Um, She's amazing on her own, but she's even better when she's got somebody like Owen to play um, over. Absolutely. That foundation frees you up to do so many things. And I feel that too. Like um, when I'm calling a square dance, um, with uh with an old time band like the whole drive of that music um it just kind of gets me going and i can feel it when i'm when my calls fall into this kind of rhythmic pattern i know that that's because what's coming from the band um is inspiring that in me naturally it's not anything that i'm really trying to to do like i'm listening to that and um, a lot of what comes out of my mouth is not really scripted and is totally informed by how much drive there is in, in you know, in, in what's happening um, rhythmically from, from the band. So I really think like the, the special sauce of any great contra dance music is, has got to be the kind of um, rhythmic foundation. I love those moments watching you call squares where you're just in the moment like that on fire. It's like the same feeling of watching someone take a really inspired guitar solo or something, you know, like when you're doing patter or you're doing, I don't have the right square dance terminology, hash calling, you're like making up stuff and the dancers are doing it, whatever you call that. It's like, I love the chances I've been to be on stage and I can just tell that you're in the zone. Yeah. It's so cool to watch because you're improvising with the dancers the way that you would improvise with music. Right. And that's really cool. Right. I think that's, I think that's part of why um, square dance calling has kind of become a favorite. And, and, and in particular, like I love, I love calling singing squares and I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the singing squares and I'm happy to do that. That was like my gateway into square dance calling for this in the same way that, um, 
the music that Seth Houston put in front of me uh, before I had played for any contra dances on trombone was like my gateway to um, um, pl- playing trombone a lot more in the in the contra dance world. My gateway to square dance calling was. Oh, singing squares. Like if I say, if I just sing this song, they're going to do a dance. That's cool. So I can, I can do that. I don't have to like make anything up at all. Like the whole prospect of um, what's known as patter calling the, 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 like the hash calling, making things up, um, creating patterns based on what you see the, the dancers uh, doing on the floor. Um you know, this kind of um, uh, back and forth. Like I see, it looks to me like they're a little tired right now. I'm going to throw in a circle to the left, something that everybody can do, kind of recenter, get back on track, and then we'll get crazy again. Um, I never would have been able to um, embrace that kind of calling without first encountering something that had some kind of clearer boundaries around it right mm-hmm. like square dance, like patter square dance calling is like um is like a wild party you know it's like <laughs> it's like everyone you know as a caller you're just kind of like what i don't know what's going on here we go yeah <laughs> like that's kind of the way i that's sort of the way i feel about it and then there's a, you can always come back to the um uh you know somewhat more scripted singing squares in new england squares that are prompted a bit more like a like a contra dance those can be a party too don't get me wrong i love it all but like a big old southern square dance party is like nothing else it's so good yeah i um while we're diversioning yeah. i mean there is your legendary stage diving incident oh good lord um you've had some good moments on stage and I remember you saying there was a square dance down at Glen Echo that you were calling where just it was full, it was yeah. packed, it so was crazy. There was no stage. This was the 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 DC uh, Square Dance Collective that is still okay, um, not Glen Echo. Yeah, not not Glen Echo. So right, this I was didn't want at, to mix this, up. this was um, in another part of the city at this um, church, this giant, I think Episcopal cathedral. Um, maybe in Northwest or I'm not sure which part of the city. Um, but the horseflies were playing and I, I was not really familiar with the horseflies at that point. I had had, um, a number of people say, do you know the band that you're calling with? And I, I sort of said well, a little bit, but not, not so much. Um, this happened to be an, I think an anniversary dance for the, the square dance collective. Like maybe it was their first anniversary or something, something, it was a significant thing. So they were expecting a big crowd and the big crowd was made even bigger by fans of the band coming out. And, um, and my God, there was no stage. The band was so loud. It was an enormous, like concrete box the there was so much that was just like overwhelming about it and talk about rhythm i mean that band is mm, yeah that band is is all rhythm like hits you in the solar plexus and just like drags you along like i felt like i was on another planet and there were probably 400 people in that church dancing and I could see the two squares that were like right in front of me 
And then it was just a mass of people beyond that. There was nothing like a lot of times when I'm calling a square, I'll be actually focused on a particular square or a set of squares that I can look at and, um, you know, respond to just make sure that my calls are, are on track. Um, that I'm not getting too far ahead of people. This night was completely mm -hmm. it, like miles away from that experience. It was just, all right, I'm going to get on this train and ride it and hope that everyone that's here is like being safe and having a good time. Cause I don't have any idea. I don't have any idea. <laughs> it was pretty fun. I saw a picture after uh, that someone had taken from the, um, um, you know, from a, a balcony shot and you can see that it's like I'm a tiny tiny little postage stamp in the in the left hand corner of the frame and then it's just like people just you can't even tell like if they're dancing figures or squares or anything like that it's just like a whole sea of uh of people it was an amazing experience and I've never worked with the horseflies um since then but I that is one that I will um, that was definitely a peak moment for sure. Amazing. Yeah. And we could talk more about this later in the interview, but it's just a side note. I just recently interviewed Tony Parks. Oh yeah. And, you know, we were talking about squares and how they've changed in popularity over the years and how it used to be everywhere. And, and, you know, they've kind of waned in popularity, but yet they're back in a way, yeah. you know, yeah, like, who? What was the demographic of the people at this event that you were? It was all over at? the map, and I would say that it was mostly like if there if there was one um, uh, age group that was most well represented, it was probably like twenty five to thirty five. I would mm -hmm. say, and that's really you know I've seen I've seen elements of that in other places that I've called, but that was really. To have that be the defining demographic, that was unique to the DC scene for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. And, I'm, you know, there's... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, please go. Um, I'm not sure... Um, I'm not sure if the... I think the DC group is still... Um, uh, you know, is still dancing or, or was before we entered into this period of no dancing. Um, you know, I'm, I'd be curious to revisit that group and kind of see how um, things have kind of settled. Because I think at the time, there was still this kind of massive movement and enthusiasm for traditional square dancing that I'm sure still exists, but I think it exists differently now. You know, it's like it's there was this kind of fire around it and um, you know, a bunch of dance groups kind of popped up uh, in various places across the, across the country. Um, and now it's kind of settled into being a thing that people do, right? It's not um, perhaps mm -hmm. like the cool thing that you have to try now, but this is like a thing that's part of people's lives. I think that's the, that's the difference is that it's kind of become part of the fabric of the way people in certain parts of the country socialize. Like there's certain areas 
where it's always been that like it never died out. But then there are lots of places where square dancing hit a peak and then basically disappeared. And now it's kind of um, hit another peak and it's settling and it doesn't feel like it's disappearing in the same way, you know. And so much of that has to do with people like Tony um, doing what they do, you know, and Bob Dulcimer, Bill Lichman. Um, my, you know, I'm, I'm, I know that I'm forgetting people. David Millstone, Will Mentor, like my favorite square dance callers, Beth Malara, like people all over the place. T-Claw, like it just, mm-hmm. um, it's great to see people. you know carrying that torch in a way but also not having to not having to prove that it's a good thing they're just like nobody has to prove that square dance square dancing is a good thing square dancing is just a good thing like it never hasn't been a good thing and it's great right it's great that the world is sort of recognizing the world i say the world the world <laughs> is recognizing we're mainstream baby <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's great that 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 um, you know that some of the people that maybe were square skeptical before have kind of realized that it's all dancing and it's all awesome. You know, I remember with you and with Will during our techno conscious doing a few techno squares just to see what would happen. Yeah. So I felt like we were literally making it up. I was like, what do you want? You're like, whatever. I'm like, does it need to be phrased? You're like, no. nope. I'm like, okay, we're just going to do something. That's exactly right. I think that's the way, um, you know, when Will and I talk about square dancing, um, that's kind of, I, I think that's at the heart of every conversation I've ever had with him about square dancing. We're just going to kind of do something. <laughs> like, we're going to see what happens. <laughs> So it's all <laughs> yeah. very, it's well within the tradition as far as I'm concerned, you know, um, and, you know, square, uh, square dancing is, um, square dancing is great. Sorry. I'm just going to sit with that for a moment and enjoy the fact that there was a period of time not too long ago when I, when I used to get to call squares all the time and it will come again. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Um, can we talk about singing squares a little bit? Hell you got, yeah, um, we can talk about those. singing squares. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't have to edit that out because that is in fact the way that I feel about singing squares. <laughs> um, I. Well, do you have a specific question, or do you want me just to sort of tell you about how I encountered them and why I why I felt compelled to explore them more? Yes, those things. Okay, all right. Um, So I was living in um, the Philadelphia area when I first was given um, a recording that was made that eventually became the uh, Ralph Sweet's All-Stars recording. But this was like a pre-release copy that a friend of mine, a caller friend of mine, had um, and she gave this to me and I listened to it and heard the auctioneer. And I thought, what in the world is this? And I want to do it. 
And so I was traveling a lot to call at the time. This was kind of, I don't know, sometime in the mid to late 2000s, I think. And, uh, and I was driving all over the place and I just put that CD in my car on repeat. And I, I called along with it. Um, and, and learn that's the way I learned the, that's the way I learned my first singing square. My first singing square was the auctioneer. Um, and so that's how I, that's how I learned it. I just listened to Ralph call over and over and over and over and over again. And I would listen to a section and then I would play it again and I would sing along and then I would listen to it again. And then I would, you know, sing along, go to the beginning, learn all the, the kind of patter. Um, so that's the way that I, that's the way that I learned before I had the opportunity to call with any dancers. It was just like calling along with Ralph in my car. Um, so the auctioneer was the first one I learned. I learned Louisiana swing shortly after that. Um, and then a couple of the other ones from, um, from that record. I remember the first time I called the auctioneer. I don't remember where it was. Great story. I don't even remember who the musicians were. I remember there were two of them. And I remember saying, mm -hmm. I have this thing that I'd like to do, but I don't have any music for it. And I don't really know how to tell you what to do. Are you willing? And they were mm -hmm. like, well, it'll probably be messy, but I sure, I guess so. <laughs> and, um, and I think it was a mess, but it was enough fun that I felt compelled to do it again and so um you know gradually coming across musicians that i've either played for ralph or knew something about singing squares and could kind of teach me from the musician's side what they needed from me as a caller um there was a real process of kind of um, learning by doing and then mm -hmm. i showed up in Greenfield to call a dance and Ralph was there. And I remember being like star, like I had been listening to this man mm -hmm. in my car for, I don't know, a year. And then he was standing there in front of me and he was so sort of enthusiastic and his very jolly Ralph way. And I don't remember if I called a singing square that night, I probably was terrified. Um, I don't remember. Um, anyway, meeting him then just inspired me to do more of that kind of thing. I think I asked him about singing squares during that um, conversation that I had with him at the Grange that night. And um, mostly what came across from him was just enthusiasm. Like I could tell in the mm -hmm. same way that I feel about calling when I really get on a roll talking to somebody you're giving me an opportunity to like think about how much I I I love it you know that's what this interview is doing for me and I sort of felt the same kind of enthusiasm coming from Ralph during this conversation like he had that laugh that laugh which yeah. I can't duplicate you know like if you if 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 you've heard Ralph's sweet laugh then you know what I'm talking about um <laughs> But what really came across was just how much he loved it. He loved calling. He loved dancing. 
he loved singing squares. He loved the he loved the fact that people were interested in doing singing squares. Um, and so I kept I kept going. I kept calling singing squares. Started to kind of establish a little bit of a reputation around having that be part of a, like a unique part of my repertoire. All of these experiences and conversations that I had with people about singing squares, about the importance of kind of um, preserving the tradition and honoring Ralph, like that was a big part of uh, the conversations. People love Ralph. And mm-hmm. that became a project that CDSS took on. And, um, I was fortunate enough to be the kind of point person between CDSS and Ralph. And so my whole journey with Singing Squares brought me into contact with Ralph, sent me off in this um, kind of wonderful experience of being able to take this long standing tradition and make it my own and then have the opportunity to then work with the person that inspired me to go on the journey in the first place. And I remember going and sitting down with Ralph, like I have a, I have a long history of being hired for jobs that I'm actually not qualified to do, (laughs) (laughs) Um, including this job for CDSS, which was to be not only the point person, for the um, the project with Ralph, the book project with Ralph, but the editor. And I'd had zero experience um, with editing books, like no experience with book publication at all. And, um, you know, but a lot of experience with dance calling and, and a particular um, interest and experience with singing squares that I think... Um, thanks to the faith that CDSS had in me, um, proved to be a real good um, relationship that I think turned into a great resource. And I remember going, I felt like I had something to to prove to the people that had um, given me the opportunity at CDSS to go and do this. I remember going to Ralph's barn uh, in 2008, and like I had a whole list of questions and we were going to just get right into it and like, you know, set all the all the the, the guidelines and like, you know, figure out how we were going to approach this whole thing and how the, all that like I I was full. I knew what I was going to say and what I was going to do. And I walked in the barn and Ralph sat me down and said, um, well, let me tell you about this. Uh, let me tell you about this barn. And he told me the whole history of the powder mill barn and the powder mill industry in Enfield, Connecticut. And um, I was probably there for, I don't know, six hours. And wow. uh, we barely touched on square dancing. There was almost no conversation about square dancing at all. Like he just wanted to show <laughs> me around. And, um, and I think once I relaxed into the fact that we were engaged in developing a relationship that would then allow us to engage in the sort of complicated and messy work of 
you know, unraveling all of these notes from his, I mean, like he was a caller at that point. He'd been calling for over 60 years, you know, there's a, and he kept everything like so many notes, like, like filing cabinets, full boxes and boxes of notes. And with like, we would open, I would say, um, you know, we'd be exploring a particular dance and I would say, well, what, you know, show me your notes from this particular dance. And it, it would be like you know, four binders full. <laughs> oh, it's somewhere in here. And he'd be flipping through. Um, so there was a lot of time just um, talking and understanding, you know, sorry, I get a little sad thinking about it. Um, He, I don't know if the book really tells the story of, of, of Ralph. And I don't know if I can really do justice to telling the story of Ralph. There are people that know him a lot better than I do, but, um, There's so much more to him than the legacy that he left through his love for calling singing squares, right? And so much, mm-hmm. like, I'm, I love the fact that I had the opportunity to actually um, uh, engage with him in this mutual interest of ours. That was a really delightful thing, but like, way beyond that. For me, is just the chance to like be around a human being that knew how to like get excited about life. That's I just I felt that every time I was with him. And while singing squares was what brought me into contact with him in the first place, and I cannot call a singing square now without thinking about him. Um what I really feel like I got from that whole experience of working with him was a a chance just to like know how to be a good human because he was a really Mm -hmm. good human. (laughs) Um, He was. Yeah. I, you know, I remember (laughs) you didn't ask me about any of this stuff and I'm kind of walking down this memory lane, which is a real gift. Um, But, you know, I remember being with my boys. I have two boys. And at the time they were, I don't know how, how many years ago Ralph died, but um, this was, you know, a number of years ago now. And I remember finding out. And I, I just remember being kind of totally knocked off my, knocked off my feet. I hadn't really Mm -hmm. thought a lot about Ralph in a while because the book was done and I would come across him at at dances and and it was always really nice to see him. But then the news of the news of the fact that he had died just kind of knocked me flat. And I realized I realized more in that moment how special he was to me. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the first few times I went to the Greenfield dance afterwards and Ralph wasn't there. It just didn't feel. I was just always waiting for him to yeah, right. show up and give you a hug and say hi. Yeah. Yeah, that the first time I went to the Powder Mill Barn to play for his dance, yeah. I was in total awe. Yeah. You know, and and he, they were so welcoming. You know, just so welcoming yeah. to us and it's just a I feel like there's something about these old halls that get infused with all the energy of all the dancing that happens there over so many years. Right, right. You know, it can't just be the beams and the wood floor, <laughs> although that really helps. <laughs> but there's something else. There's like this feeling when you go in a hall like this, you can just tell it has all this energy that it's absorbed over the years yeah. and created over the years. And I just felt that way walking into this building with all the penance and kind of wishing that my life and his life had overlapped more. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know, um, I love the fact that Polly, his daughter has kind of taken the barn and made it, uh, made it her own, you know, like she's got, she's sort of, she carries all those memories that we're talking about now of her dad. And, um, And no matter what happens in that barn now, there's no way that that spirit can't be felt, you know, like it's not not being mm -hmm. used for dancing so much now. Um, but it's being used for other things and the spirit of all of those, uh, you know, of, of all of everything that's happened in that in that space, I think really does exist. I totally, totally agree. Feel that in a lot of in a lot of dance halls, but that one in particular. Those are some good memories.
Well, um, I, I remember I was a brand new contra musician. And so I was learning how all this was working. So I went out to like, just learn and Crowfoot was one of my favorite bands and they were doing a workshop at Ralph Page dance weekend. So I decided to go to Ralph Page and you were calling there. And I think that was when you were becoming, you'd been calling for a while, but you were really like coming into your own, you know, you called this dance. What was it? It was for like 12 people. It was a a blender, a mixer. Uh It was something. I'll edit this out if we don't remember what it was. But anyway, it's a really cool experience. This might not go anywhere if I can't remember what the dance was. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, Maybe 16 people. Yeah, so it would have been. Yeah, uh, there, there's, there's a 16-person dance called um, a double quadrille that came from a collection of dances by a New England caller named Rod Linnell. And he wrote a number of these dances. This is called Rod's. The one that I think you're talking about is called Rod's Quad Number Two. Um, and it's the only 16 person, um, the only kind of double square that I that I know. Um, and it was a nerve wracking experience to call it the first couple of times. But once you do it, uh, and it, that might have actually been one of the first times that I'd done it at Ralph Page. I do remember that that experience. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, actually, they keep uh, careful notes in the. Yeah. The, they keep like a list afterwards of what was called, yep. and we could just look it up later. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember that weekend. Um, I remember that weekend really well. I think that that was was that a Ralph Sweet uh, uh, tribute? Were they were they um, sort of honoring him over the course of that weekend? I mean, he was. That could have been. So there was a Ralph Page um, Dance Legacy Weekend event when Ralph and I actually got up on stage together and called the auctioneer, like in tandem. Wow. It was. And my wife was there um, that weekend. And uh, I remember getting up, calling it with him, like standing side by side. And like we traded the pattern back and forth off at the beginning and we traded. Um, figures who we were passing the microphone back and forth. We traded figures um, and choruses and we finished the dance. Like I was riding high and we finished the dance and I walked off the stage. My wife was standing there and I just collapsed into like a big puddle of tears. I think I was just so, <laughs> I was so overwhelmed by, by that experience that I, that I, I didn't even realize that, that it was coming like that sort of wave of, uh, and they weren't, they weren't, they were like tears of like, Oh my God, I can't believe that just happened. What a joyful experience. And wow, life is so beautiful. You know, like, like all of these things that I think a lot of us that have done a lot of contra dancing, you know, both in roles that involve being on stage and also off, have at times like people that keep coming back to contra dancing they have this experience of like these moments of just um like joy right that was one of those moments of joy and i was Mm -hmm. i was in the joy when i was in it and then when it came out of the joy i was like that was joy i just had joy wow that was such a special experience what oh my gosh i want more joy Uh, lordy yeah 
Yeah, and I mean, how many concha dances have you called? Thousands? Oh it has to be. I'm not really. I don't know. I don't know how to. I don't know how I would count that. There were definitely. Do you have any favorite? Do I have any f- do you have favorite contra dance memories? I mean, I did wow. bring up the uh, infamous crowd surfing incident, which you can talk about or not sure. as you choose. But uh. so I'm not sure that I would like. That's a thing. When I look at it, I kind of say, "Well, that happened," and <laughs> and it was fun. Like the those um those Glen Echo uh, contra stock dances that Penelope um, Weinberger. Uh, organized with a whole host of other people, but I think it was really her kind of brain, brainchild. Um, you know, doing that with Will, I think, really solidified our friendship and um, collaboration in a in in a new way. Like I, I had worked with him before. I was aware of his. Um, you know, his presence as a caller, I always really liked him. And then engaging in, in these events together, there was something that kind of brought us into this kind of um, brother relationship that exists now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love Will. Will is such a close friend. And it was really Will that said, you have to, you have to do this, you know. <laughs> And so the crowd, the crowd surfing. And so um, we kind of arranged it. And I had talked to the other, the, the musicians. And then it was a moment. It was so <laughs> weird. I mean, I don't know. Like, I still, I still sort of have this experience sometimes when I'll be calling a really big dance. And I'll see people coming up the hall in... Um, you know, uh, line lines of four down the hall, they'll turn and come up the hall. And when I see all these faces like moving up towards the stage, I'm like, I wonder if I could do that again. No way. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to do that again. I'm 40, whatever, 47 now. And uh, I don't know. It was a funny. It was a funny experience. I'm not. Sh- I don't. I don't really know what to say about it. It was. It was. Um, it was odd, and it was exactly right in that moment. Yeah, you know. And I remember hearing about it, and of course, watching video of it. And to me, what was exciting was just like, oh man, Nils is badass. First of all, <laughs> but then the thought of just being so in the moment. It, it's the same thrill you know, of like doing hash calling for squares or whatever, you know, and, and I love that about Will, like Will is someone who you can create things with in the moment. Yeah, totally. Like that is what is amazing about him. And I love that working with him as a band. Yeah. yeah. I feel like when we're on stage together, we're going to make something. Right. We're going to grab a moment out of the ether and it's going to be crazy and we're going to do it and we're not going to judge whether it's good or not until long afterwards. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. That's such a good, that's such a good way of saying it, you know, like, um, uh, and I'm also really glad that you, that you um, ended that by saying we're not going to judge it until long afterwards or ever, you know, like, I think that's what I really love about 
playing music for contra dances and participating as a caller, um, you know, facilitating contra dances in that role. Like, um, I think I heard Tony Parks describe it as like uh, ephemeral art. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. if those were the if if the, those were the words that he used, um, but like it happens, and then it's you know, and it's beautiful, and then it's gone, right? Like it lives, it lives in people's memories, it lives in people's hearts, it lives in their bodies, um, but we have the opportunity as creators in this um kind of social dancing environment that um is really powerful and community building and community focused and fleeting and then we do it again and we do it again and we do it again and we do it again you know and it's different every time. It's just so fascinating to me. The chance to talk about it, having not had the opportunity to do it for nine months, um, mm-hmm. is powerful. Like I really, I did not realize until this conversation how much I miss it. I didn't realize. Yeah, me me too sometimes. It's it's like you know, we don't have like there's there're little things about it that can uh you know, get tiring or like I could get burned out from a million booking emails and logistics yeah, and right. plane tickets and you know, finances or whatever, the just the logistics of making all these things happen behind the scenes. And it's really nice to just like you say just be able to remember it in its purest form. Yeah, right. Right. Which, which is the experience, yeah. which is the part that matters. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of being like when we ask musicians and callers to be like professional country musicians and callers, we're really asking them to go through all the things that it takes to get to the dance and don't even have to show all that. And then just show up on the stage and leave all of that behind and be there in the moment, even if you've just flown in on a red eye and you've been gone for two weeks straight and, you know, whatever yep. you don't have your luggage or whatever yeah. just happened to you, you know, you know, and I've had a lot of moments, um, getting up on stage, having had, you know, I'm remembering one in particular, there's a, a, a great weekend in Berea, Kentucky called the hands Four dance weekend. And it was, a I don't yeah. remember specifically why, but it was a nightmare travel for me to get there. Just, I mean, like, wrong thing after mishap after like my trombone got lost like i i it was just a mess getting there and then it was a long way from the airport to the hall and like things were already going and um i was supposed to be calling and i wasn't there and they had to like pinch it for me i mean there was so much about it that was just like stressful i walked into the hall feeling stressed and as soon as as I stepped up on stage, um, it was like every bit of the kind of stress of that day just mm-hmm. was gone. And there, you know, there are other kind of um, performance experiences, you know, stage experiences that have that same sort of effect, but nothing quite like 
what I feel like when I arrive and pick up the microphone to call it call a dance. There's there really is something about that that's just like, oh yeah, all right, I've arrived. Everything's gonna be yeah. everything's gonna be okay. Um. Yeah, it's like it's like a it's like a a nice coming home. Yeah, it's really like kind of accessing this place inside. That sounds hokey, but it really it's like yeah. being transported, you know. I felt like that too. I could be so exhausted, been on airplanes or whatever. My body is killing me. You show up, you just sound check. Maybe sound check didn't go that well. Yeah, right. <laughs> <which> sometimes happens. <laughs> you know, and you're like trying to make everything work and then the first few notes come out and then it, I don't feel the pain in my body. Yeah. I don't worry about anything that happened. I mean, that's why we all do it. Like when those nights are good and we're all in sync with the dancers and the caller and the musicians and the sound person and everybody else, it's just magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's nice to tap into that feeling. I mean, you must have so many stories from concert dance calling. I do. Like you've, a lot. I remember <laughs> when I was a newer dancer going to the Scout House, and it was a Thursday dance that had moved to the Scout House, and Great Bear was calling, and the hall was so full, people couldn't get in. And you were the caller that night, and you were calling with, like, everybody had their hands up and around them for, <laughs> you know, when you were, like, promenading your partner because yeah. you, there was no room to, like, you had to modify the dances. Yeah, and, yeah. like, just nights like that. I don't know. You presided over a lot of crazy memories for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and still some of my favorite calling memories. I mean, I love it. They're really fun. It's fun to think about all those things. Um, but I think some of my favorites are like weddings when people have never danced before. Like I remember calling a mm -hmm. wedding with Elixir once. I think it was a Vermont wedding. And um, I was calling the um, what I call the Borrowdale Exchange, which is like the six hands round and you put your right hands in to make the hands across star and then the left hands and everybody dives down to like try to be the low hand pair. Um, I'm sure you've seen me do it before. Um, and it's mm -hmm. a great like kind of party dance. Right. And there was something about this particular group of people that took that element of the dance and they took it to a level that I have never seen it go to before. <laughs> Um, you know, it wasn't a huge crowd that they were, you know, but they were just having so much fun and it was, it made me laugh, you know, like it was one of those things where I was calling and I was trying to make sure that people <laughs> knew what they were supposed to do next, but I couldn't keep myself from laughing into the microphone. So they were having an experience that was, um, that was joyful and they were laughing and they found themselves hilarious it was made more funny by the fact that I found them hilarious and we were all sort of laughing together. Like the whole band was laughing. We were all just kind of engaged in this, um, in this communal experience of joy that I think defines a lot of what, um, is great about it. you know, it's funny. like, I listen to myself talk and I think I do feel this way and I feel sort of compelled to like dig into the archives and say, and then there was this one time that was really crappy and I hated everything about it, you know? <laughs> and, and sometimes I, you know, and sometimes I do have those experiences where I'm in a hall and I'm like, um, 
you know, recognizing that my energy is not something that the um, dancers can respond to in a positive way for whatever reason, like I'm wearing something negative, you know, I'm carrying that into my own presentation. And so the fact that there's a center set and it's like twice as long as the other sets in the room is not because the dancers are doing something wrong. It's that there's something about the tone that I'm setting because of what I'm bringing that is, you know, causing people to feel like they're digging their, their heels in, right. Always trying to like, think about how the experience is being affected by what I'm bringing. Um, and never like, blaming anything on on the dancers for what is happening in in the hall like it's a it's a relationship it's a collaboration i think the hard nights are when i lose track of the fact that this is all born of um a communal experience like we're all when it's working really well it is the dancers and the caller and the musicians all together. It's like you said earlier, it's not a performance. Like none of this is, none of this is, I mean, like we're on stage and we're playing music and there's a big crowd of people that's enjoying the music that we're playing. And so in that sense, it's, it kind of has that performance element, but that's not what it's really designed to be. And that's such right. a, that I think makes it a really unique experience as a musician. Like we're used to being, I think as performing musicians, we're used to being in environments or many musicians are used to being in environments where they get up and play something and they're listened to and then they're appreciated. Um, and playing for contra dances is, I mean, it's great to get appreciation, but, um, when you're doing it really well, um, sometimes the sometimes you have to generate your own appreciation based on what you're seeing, right? Like that can be sort of frustrating. Yeah. That can be like, I think as a caller, the role is just more visible, and so mm -hmm. I can forget sometimes when I'm when I'm wearing my caller's hat that the musicians or maybe not feeling as much of that kind of wash of like appreciation as, as I do just because I'm the one that happens to be holding the microphone. Right. Will is actually really great about always making sure that he turns, that he like funnels that appreciation towards the band, like constantly. I love it. Um, when it comes he's making sure that the band is also sort of mm -hmm. receiving that. And it's really important because it playing for dances is a really different, it's a different kind of experience. Yeah. And you know, you're talking about like being aware that you're doing it for this communal experience you're creating. And if that isn't upheld by either the musicians or the caller or the dancers, you know, then you don't get the full richness of that experience. And there are lots of times when dancers forget or don't even know that their role is to 
have a communal experience yeah. with everyone right. else. You know, as a caller, you take ultimate responsibility for what happens on the floor, but that center set was probably there the week before you got yeah, there too. It's true. You know? It's true. I mean, and, and I know and, there's uh, only there's only a certain amount of I mean there there is a certain amount of change that you can affect by the energy that you bring, but right. but dance communities do have their own personalities and I totally recognize that, you know. Like I don't right. I don't have any kind of delusions that I actually have control over what's going on in a hall. <laughs> like ever. Right. <laughs> there's a sort of like customer is always right thing yeah. that you have to do as a caller yeah. though. Yeah, it's true. Gotta sew a button on my vest Tonight I've got to look my best Lulu's back in town Got to get a half a buck somewhere Got to shine my shoes and comb my hair Gotta get myself up And brunettes Miss Otis regrets That she won't be around You can tell the mailman not to call I won't be coming home until the fall I might not come back home at all Janice and Stephanie and Beth and Annabelle Julie, and Heather and Amelia, what's your name? Amelia. So long, girls, it's been swell. You can tell the mailman no forwarding address. Lulu's gonna take me, that's anybody's guess. 
But sure, I remember what happened last time I got myself into this mess But there's just something about Lulu La 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 Lulu Lulu's back in town I mean, when I was first playing for Contras or even just going and I wanted to play, I wanted to talk to these musicians who, you know, I just like whether it was Nightingale or someone Mm -hmm. and I just kind of or Crowfoot, I idolized them. And, you know, we became friends later. But like I was so afraid to talk to them. Like it took me five dances to work up the courage to go stand by the stage and talk to them. And of course, now that I am a country musician, we're so down to earth mostly. Yeah. We love when people come and talk to us, yeah. unless it's sound check. Don't talk to me during sound yeah, check. Right. But otherwise, come talk to <laughs> That's me. Right. And but I think we we come into this with our external world perspective where music is a commodity that is created that we purchase and then we idolize these people in a weird way that distances us from them. And it's easy to bring that mentality into a concert dance. And I think that's what's so magical about dances where the dancers can sit on the stage or sit behind the stage or, you know, like blur those lines I mean, in smaller communities, like everyone knows the musicians and the caller and everyone knows each other, maybe. But in a bigger city dance where people are showing up and they don't know all this stuff and it's just an activity, it's easy to have that mindset. And so I don't always blame the dancers if they don't know that they're part of a communal creation because it might not occur to them. Right. You know, and it's also a tricky balance because there does need to be a certain amount of... um kind of boundary around the stage you know like there's expensive mm-hmm. equipment up there and you can't have people just kind of wandering up um up on stage and so being as i think in especially as a caller um but i think any any musician in a in a, a, a contra dance band that has kind of made the rounds done some touring and um and played for some of the the bigger dances kind of has this experience of both wanting to embrace the community and also needing and also needing to say this is like this is my little special area and yeah you know i need to i need to preserve this both to protect my equipment and my bandmates equipment but also my own sort of um uh, personal uh, uh um energy right like there's there's a yeah. lot we're giving a lot we're all sort of giving a lot and um right yeah and when i'm playing i'm hyper focused on the dancers and i don't want to be distracted there's one dance weekend where the stage is like the kind where you bring it in on risers Uh and they had it set up so the dancers could walk around all four sides of the stage and so while we're playing there's people behind us and to the left and the right and in front and i just felt like there was all this movement in my peripheral vision and i'm so used to being hyper focused on the dancers it was really distracting for yeah, me. Yeah, interesting. Huh. And it's sometimes when people have really loud conversations during like a really quiet waltz. Right. <laughs> you know, we all, like you have to tune some of that out as a performer. Yeah. But then there's times where, yeah, so I, I hear that. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, that balance for sure. Huh. Yeah. I'm curious to get your perspective as a caller who is also a musician. Uh-huh. And for contra dances, what do you think about, I mean, I asked you kind of your ideal contra music yeah. and you mentioned good rhythm, yeah, yeah. 
But more specifically, when you're talking about like matching tunes to dances, um, how important is that to you? And, you know, what's your role? So I tend, I mean, you know, a lot of the work that I'm doing now happens with the band that I know so well, that knows me so well, that we have a very, very small vocabulary that is necessary to communicate what a dance needs. So like when I'm talking to Anna, and I do a lot of uh, programming with um, with Anna, but but everybody kind of participates in that. Um, if we're pre-programming a dance, I'll have some idea of what um, you know of what I want to uh, what I want to do. I tend to think about contra dances in terms of arrival points and mood, right? So, like arrival points mm-hmm. are things like balances. Um, uh, long lines forward and back. Um, so those are like hard arrival points, right? Those are things that, that are, um, be here right now kind of moments. And then there are arrival points that are soft arrival points, like entering into a circle or how long it takes to go from a circle into a swing. Um, that will, that will affect the choice of, of tune. So, you know, um, smooth or punchy, those kinds of adjectives come in. Um, but a lot of it is, uh, is more kind of descriptive of, of mood, but especially when it comes to working with, um, working with elixir. So I'll talk about, I'll, I'll, I'll tease out any significant arrival points, mention those to Anna and say, I'd like for this one to be, um, you know, one of our uh, knock them over the head kind of, you know, high energy rocking things. Um, or, you know, we can, we can be a little bit more gentle here, you know? Um, I think one of the things that defined my career early as a caller, like that, the whole relationship of like dance to music has evolved like radically for me because early on, I wanted to look at my program and have the kind of arc of energy musically in my mind because I'm also a musician, right? Like these are all things that this is the soundtrack mm-hmm. that's playing in my head. Like I should know what to say about what I want because I'm a musician and I know the music that's going to like best support this dance. And so like approaching the conversation with this kind of edge, like, all right, so for the first dance, we're going to want this thing and for the second dance it's going to be a down the hall and so i want something that's marchy in the b part and like definitely no jigs you know like and that (laughs) like i'm embarrassed to say actually how long i probably held on to that as my approach to describing um the kind of dance to music relationship now what i find most um interesting and fun is if I can have an idea in my mind that I'm so not attached to that I'm able to like say, here's this dance, here's what I have in my mind, but I would love to know what you have in your mind, right? So it becomes more of a conversation. And that's a luxury that I have with working with Elixir that I don't necessarily have working with other bands, but, um, but I do like, I do really like that approach because the, the opportunity, I mean, like some, some people that are listening may, um, 
disagree with me here and I'm totally comfortable with that. A contradance is 32 bars and any 32 bar tune is going to work with any 32 bar contradance. That's kind of the bottom line, right? Like it might not be a peak experience for people, but if the puzzle pieces fit together, yeah, you can get away with pretty much anything. Um, and I think approaching it with that sense of like, nothing is really going to go horribly wrong if the tune and dance don't match exactly has created this um, chance to be surprised. Like there was so, there was so long in my, in the early part of my career when I wanted everything to go, like I wanted it to go Mm -hmm. and letting that go and having the opportunity to just be amazed by what all of these incredible musicians that I'm, surrounded with when I call contradances with any band. I mean, it's amazing how, how extraordinary the musicianship in the contradance world is. Um, so getting out of the way and letting the musicians do what they do, I think has been the most satisfying part of um, understanding the relationship of dance to music. Like mm-hmm. letting other people teach me rather than being the one that dictates. Um, yeah. And a lot of it is also surrendering to that sense of tonight or today or whatever is going to be its own unique experience. Right, exactly. And it's very easy. Like as a new band, we would have like, oh, this tune worked perfectly with this dance. So next time a caller picked that dance, we'd want to put the same tune set with it. But that element of magic may not come back that time because right. it's not just that tune and that dance. It's that collar and that hall and that moment in the night yeah. and the temperature yeah. and yeah. the humidity yeah. and yeah. Lord knows what else. Yeah. Yeah. And and so like I think we all we first learn what works and then it's easy to be rigid about it. Yeah. And then when you reach your old age in contra <laughs> playing, then after you play 500 dances, then you can start yeah. to say like, Oh, I want to mess around with this. So like we did a buddy system and will did a few things together. And I'd be like, okay, will I want you to call the same dance every night this week on our tour. And I'm going to put a different tune with it every night yeah, yeah. and really explore. Cause somebody said to me, somebody smart was like, well, it can't be the wrong tune. It just brings out different parts of the dance. Exactly. Maybe it was Andrew. Andrew Van Nordstrand. That seems like the kind of thing Andrew Van Nordstrand would say. It's really true. Um, That's, I think that it's that feeling. I, you know, I remember I was um, calling with Elixir in Seattle. This was years ago. And I think I was just getting past that, that point of like dictating to the point of like being willing to just embrace whatever came. And I remember, you know, I, I, I was always so uncomfortable starting off a night with a band playing a kind of gentle jig, especially at a big high powered dance weekend, you know, and where the, Mm -hmm. where the expectations are like high to like have a sort of high energy, wild twirly peak dancing experience. I mean, and I love, I love, you know, weekends that start off like that. But we entered into this weekend. I called the dance that I almost always call at the beginning of a contra dance weekend. We entered into this weekend um, 
with this like really gentle, lovely kind of lilting jig. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I like kind of smiling to myself like a year ago, six months ago, I would be freaking out right now. And right now, I'm just enjoying the fact that this is happening, you know? I'm I'm not mm-hmm. sure what like what else to say about it other than like recognizing that moment as a little bit of a shift um in terms of my own my own kind of relationship to what the possibilities are. So many possibilities. Mm-hmm. And those possibilities become much broader and more interesting if um like the more sort of uh, fluid I can be, right? The more acceptance you can kind of muster, the easier life gets. Deep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And there's so many things that we think of as like unwritten rules. Like I remember watching Adam and Jage play, you know, in either Crowfoot or Mavish and just thinking they play a lot of jigs. Yeah. Like, like a lot of jigs, like almost 50, I counted it several nights, almost 50% jigs. And that why was that so scandalous to me? I feel like the rest of us have this unwritten rule that you play reels all night, maybe one set of marches and maybe two sets of jigs. Yeah, like two, you know, two sets maybe, of jigs like, is a lot. Like I remember, yeah. I remember having that experience of calling, I mean, I, you know, Jage and Adam are so dear to me. And uh, I remember having that experience of calling with them and thinking, there are a lot of jigs. I think, um, you know, they've, they, they've started nights with, with jigs. And this was at a time when I definitely wasn't like super comfortable with that. Um, but I, I hear you on that. I, yeah, I mean, I, like I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but, um, yeah, these, these kind of un, unwritten rules that are, that are broken by certain musicians and it kind of wakes you up in a new way. Like, Oh, that's possible. I can do that. I could do, I could do that. Yeah. That's really great. That thing. Like it's working really well. And I remember when I was learning enough about some of the dances that I would begin to recognize them when the caller would say what it was at the mic. And so I started making mental notes of, especially dances that are more distinctive, like Mary Kay's reel. That's a David Kaner dance, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so I remember Crowfoot was playing at Ooh La La, and it was Mary Kay's reel, and they just played this. And that's a dance with a lot of movement, I think of it. Yeah. It's like you need tunes with momentum, get yourself from place to place. They just played this grooviest set to it, and it was the exact opposite of the mood I would have thought for it, and it was transcendent. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, I love when people bring out these whole other nuances of what a tune and dance pairing could be. Yeah. It's, it's really great. It is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. You know, while we're thinking of fun dances, we haven't talked about family dances very much Yahoo. at all, but I remember doing a few of those with you. Speaking of fun times. Yeah. yeah. Those are great. You know, um, Sometimes they're really easy. It's like calling weddings. I, you know, any kind of community dance that um, has a mix of, of uh, 
people that have some experience on a dance floor and no experience on a dance floor. And then also a, a mix of um, expectations, right? Basically what I'm trying to do when I'm calling any sort of community dance is to create an experience that everyone can engage in easily without having to think too hard, like keep the teaching way, way, way down um, to the extent that I do need to teach. Um, having the teaching not be um, standing in front and saying, and then you're going to do this and then you're going to do this, like make it really lively, um, a sort of part of the community building experience. We can learn this thing together and then we get to do this cool thing by taking what we've learned and putting it together with music, right? Like this is so great, you know, it's all part of the journey. Um, you know, and a big part of it is just having the right repertoire or being willing to recognize that you have the wrong repertoire and and like ditching that and making something up. Um, so there's a big spirit of uh, flexibility that I think is required in order to um, for me, I think I have seen people, other callers approach family dances in a completely different way that has worked brilliantly for the community that they're calling to and, um, you know, and, and with their kind of style and approach. And so I think there's a lot we can learn from each other and there's no right way to do it. The right way to do it is paying attention to the people that you have in front of you and giving them an experience that they leave saying, boy, that was really fun. Like if, if, if mm -hmm. you've accomplished that, whether you did, two dances and expected to do 12 or, you know, 15 dances and expected to do four. <laughs> like I've been in both situations mm -hmm. where, you know, you run a dance three times through and everybody's like, okay, like what's the next one? And you're chugging through all of your repertoire and then you're making stuff up because they're so enthusiastic uh -huh. or you have a crowd that can't seem to learn the thing that you were certain that they would be able to learn like that, you know? Um, and so you're, you know, you're working with like one dance and when they have that, that dance experience, when they finally get it, they're like, Oh my God, that was the best. <laughs> um, so being willing to let go, like have a plan, be willing to let go of it and make sure that the people that you have in front of you are having a good time. And if those things, if, if those things are accomplished, I, I, chalk up any community dance experience as a success. I love those dances. Those are super fun. Yeah, they are magic. Thank you. 
So I'm curious to ask you, um, what just like taking a bit of a perspective over how you've seen the dance scene change mm -hmm. over the years that you've been in it, and any observations that you have, and where it might be headed, and hmm. you know those kind of thoughts. That's a. I knew you know you had mentioned that you might um, ask something like this, and I was like, I don't know what I would say about that. And I had an opportunity to think about what I would say about that. And now faced with the, the question, I don't really know what to say about that. Um, There's maybe more meaningful ways to ask that question, like on a smaller scale, yeah. you know, it's, like, like, oh, uh, no, 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 ahead. no, please. I'm, I, I would just, I would just be, <laughs> I would just be talking right now. <laughs> it's not my, not my favorite thing to do to hear myself talk. I mean, how has music changed specifically? Like in the beginning, there, like you mentioned, there not being a lot of like trombonists mm -hmm. playing at the time. It doesn't mean there, of course, hadn't been any. There had been bands with horns in them going way yeah, back, yeah. but things come and go, and there just happened to not be any at the time that you started. Right, right. And Elixir was a certain thing when it started. Maybe there weren't a lot of bands with horns at that moment. Right. So how has the music changed and bands that you've seen come and go? How has all that changed you know, I mean, I, in your tenure? I, you know, I think um, something that I see more frequently now is people recognizing uh, a need that needs to be, that in their um, mind needs to be filled and like, thinking way outside of the box of possible ways to fill that need, right? Like I think about Jeff Kaufman who does so many mm -hmm. interesting things and is such a creative, um, you know, thinker that has a, like a tech background and like, he's so, um, Oh, I mean, I, I don't know Jeff that well. And so I'm saying these things like, like, you know, like I, I know how he thinks and I really don't, but my impression is that when he recognizes a, a, a gap or a problem or something that, um, you know, that, uh, that he sees taking shape in a particular way, if the path forward isn't clear, the possibilities of approaching that, that particular issue are completely wide open. Like what, what crazy mm -hmm. thing can I can I do that's going to fill what I have identified as this gap that I want to, that I want to fill. And, um, you know, and so, um, I don't even know what to, what to call the various tools, like the, the kind of stomp board, um, uh, um, percussion sounds yeah, that, 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 that have, um, that have come up in a number of different bands. Like we, you know, we need something with a little bit of thump here. We don't have a percussionist per se, but I'm going to, you know, amplify this footboard and um, crank it up with a bunch of bass and it's going to sound like a kick drum, you know, like right. that kind a little of thing. different than foot percussion. Right. You know, but like the mean lids use yeah, one, exactly. Jeff Kaufman has yeah. used one yeah. and free raisins and his various bands. Um, Perpetually motion yeah, had a foot sound kind of I mean, I like think, that. I think you know? those guys, you know, in a lot of ways, um, they sort of changed everything. And, you know, I mean, there, there, there have Ed and John. Ed and John, about. yeah. There, there have always yeah. been things that, um, that, 
have been, you know, moving towards kind of outside of the box, like exploring the possibilities. But what they brought into the mix was just so different than anything else that had really happened before. It was a little bit unsettling, I think. I mean, I, like, I love both of them. I didn't always love calling with perpetual emotion. Um, did I just say that? No. I mean, like, I I had some really peak experiences, and I also had some experiences where I was like, Meh, this feels hard, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But they were so committed to their um, vision of what could be that I think in some ways it inspired um, other people to kind of shake off whatever um, might have been holding them back in some in some respects, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't want to place too much um uh, pressure is the wrong word. I don't want to place um, too much on on their presence uh, uh, and John's perpetual emotions presence in the continents world as being like a, a um, path altering moment. But I do think it got people certainly got me thinking about things in a in a in a new kind of way. Um, and then I love what I see happening with, um, you know, with young bands. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting. Um, I'm getting a little tired now, Julie. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just realizing. I like, get ya. Um, <laughs> The, the brain yeah. fog. <laughs> and this is a tough, this is, this is probably the hardest question you've asked so far. So the fact that it's coming at the end is a little bit, uh, is a little tough. Um, I'll tr- You're welcome. I'll try, yeah. I'll try to finish, I'll try to finish <laughs> this thought. What I was going to say was, um, starting with Elixir, which is now coming up on what, you know, like, 14, 15 years with our current lineup and stretches back a little bit earlier than that. So, you know, like pushing 20 years. Um, the, the repertoire that was new for us that lasted as kind of new repertoire in the, in the contra dance scene, like a new sound in the, in the contra dance world for years and years and years and years is now, um, I've had experiences on on the dance floor or as the you know the listening to another band at a, that I'm I'm sharing the bill with at a dance weekend where I'll hear a different take on a tune that I've been playing with Elixir for you know 10 years and it's always really interesting to me to hear kind of how that um that evolution um takes place like what do other people hear when they listen to this particular tune and i think like that process has been happening forever right it's this is not anything right. new but in this moment and my experience as a musician in the contra dance world right now like the experience of being part of a band that is now sort of considered like traditional <laughs> um right yeah um, and hearing what 
the newer bands are doing with music that comes from our our the the traditional elixir repertoire <laughs> repertoire um <laughs> is an indication i think of of um just how much creativity uh there continues to be in the world of contra dance music and i don't have any doubt that things are going to continue to change and evolve and ways that we might be able to predict and also ways that are going to be like crazy outside of the box. I mean, it just feels like a lot of possibility. That's what it feels like to me. And I hope to be, I hope to be around for a long time to kind of see it all evolve. You know, when we just had this um, Monterey concert in the California zoom concert that I mentioned before with elixir, I definitely had a moment of like wondering what it would be like to celebrate 40 years with that band, you know? Wow. Um, We had the, we had the pleasure of playing as a guest band at the Swallowtail 30th anniversary weekend. So like some Mm -hmm. sense of, um, in, in Massachusetts a number of years ago. And so there's some, like there's some, sense of what it's like for a band to be together for for that long to kind of know each other that well you know and i mentioned elixir and my my feeling about elixir is being sort of family i get that same sense from a band like swallowtail and um while i can't predict the future you know like i hope that I'm able to play for contra dances with Elixir for another another 15 years, 20 years. I mean, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. And yeah. I think there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot about that that um, certainly speaks to the relationships in the band and the music that we make together. But it's also the the context in which we have chosen to make most of our music like in this world of playing for um for dances i love the fact that there is a place for new and there's also a place for um like for i don't know why am i why am i hesitating to say it there's also a place for old right like Mm -hmm. It's great. And there's appreciation for both of those things. Like like really honest, just genuine love and appreciation for the stuff that's been around for a really long time and that continues to sort of march along in the same way that it's always been. And like equal appreciation and enthusiasm for the stuff that is um, kind of breaking new ground and, you know, setting new um uh, energy like creating new sounds and all of these things are like moving along in tandem i just mm-hmm. it's a great it's a great thing we don't have to we, we can all kind of be on the path together and appreciate what we're all doing and um you know as the as as one of the old guys, I don't feel like I'm being pushed aside, which is great. Yeah. I think it's cool. Yeah. People made room for us and we make room for yeah, others. Exactly. And, you know, right. 
And I love your your positivity, you know, saying that it feels like things are wide open in terms of what the future of the contra music could hold. Because sometimes it's easy if you did like a checklist, it's like, well, it's all been done. We've done all these different kinds of tunes from all over the world, or we've done techno, and we've done looping, we've done this and that, and drum sets, and hand drums, and horns, and, you know, but that's not where the newness comes from. Like, we don't have to try so hard for it to be new. It will be new as long as there are new people doing it with love and care. And like you say, these tunes, they're like a conduit that gets filtered through people. And each person who plays it changes it in their own way and makes it their own. Yeah, yeah. And so in that sense, there's infinite newness. Yeah. And, that's, and it, it, does it doesn't of... have to be. It doesn't have to be as new as like being the perpetual emotion who's like creating a whole new way of playing looping for consciousness or being techno contra or anything. There's a lot of more subtle ways to be new that are deep and rich and shouldn't be overlooked. Yeah. Oh, that's a really that's a really great way to that's a great way to say it. Yeah. You know what, Julie, I am. I started this conversation a little tired because it's late and I have to say that I have been so engaged by the opportunity to talk about um, my own experience and to kind of be with you um, and soaking up your interest and enthusiasm and appreciation for this thing that we um, do together. So thank you for asking me, and I've really, really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope that um, you're able to find some useful bits from it. (laughs) Definitely. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much, Nils. A real pleasure. Thanks for listening to ContraPulse. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams. Thanks to Great Meta Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzakowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit contrapulse.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing!